0: It fights all types, Dad, and today is the three-year anniversary that Peter Schiff, I think well-documented Bitcoin skeptic, lost all the Bitcoin he ever owned. He tweeted that his wallet got corrupted somehow and his password was no longer valid. I'm sure it wasn't that he was using the wrong password, or forgot his password. I says, now not only is my Bitcoin intrinsically worthless, it has no market value either. I knew owning Bitcoin was a bad idea, I just never realized it was this
1: bad. Just a side note, the price of Bitcoin was $8,000 when he lost that. (laughs) This happened three years ago. And the reason we're bringing it up is because the Bitcoin core developer, Luke Dasher, was hacked, allegedly, and lost 200 Bitcoin. And it's interesting to see how people lose Bitcoin and in what circumstances. And from the tweet screenshot in this article, it looks like Peter is trying to access a mobile wallet. I see that little mobile bar and Wi-Fi symbol and battery in the corner. Yeah.
0: And that's definitely a mobile air message to a modal iOS type error message.
1: Do you think it's iOS because it has the yeah. date stamp and then that arrow? Yeah. Okay. So what wallet do you think it was? Blue Wallet, maybe? That I couldn't tell you.
0: I don't recognize this screen. But I wasn't really familiar with iOS wallets three years ago. Could certainly... I mean, Blue Wallet's one of the OGs, so it certainly could be.
1: I just find it interesting that he held Bitcoin. Apparently, he was gifted this Bitcoin, but... I thought his whole show yeah, was. <laughs> was that he would never touch Bitcoin with a 10-foot pole. So it's interesting that he had some. Losing it, forgetting the password, I'm not surprised. He doesn't seem like a particularly careful no person.
0: I wonder if he had... Uh, like digital, you know, if say digital certificates were a thing for all of his gold claims that are in somebody else's bank, do you think he'd keep all of those on his iPhone, or do you think maybe he'd put those somewhere a little safer?
1: Probably somewhere safer. And also, I think the way that you hold gold is you do trust someone to take care of it for you. So the custody model of Bitcoin is quite different. This extreme personal responsibility—it's similar to having lots of cash in your wallet. I think a yeah. lot of people would be very stressed out if they had $50,000 of cash in their wallet.
0: I guess, you know, at the end of the day, though, it's not surprising that a gold bug like Schiff doesn't understand the value of being able to self-custody your asset. Actually kind of clicks.
1: He would not get that. (laughs) That tracks. Well, we're not necessarily punching down too much on Schiff. We're just sort of exploring the issue of Bitcoin custody because it's important now after so many exchanges have been... Hacked, and Ponzi schemes. There are questions around them, so we all need to self custody. And when I compare self custody to holding cash, obviously I think that self custody, frankly, is much safer than holding cash because with cash you can lose it, or it can be stolen from you, or seized if you are stopped by a agent of the government. But with a Bitcoin wallet, you can secure the private key quite robustly by creating a strong set of seed words to generate a very secure private key, not putting that online, and then securing these seed words, either by simply never letting them touch the internet, putting them in an envelope, something like that. So I think that self-custody, again, is Bitcoin's killer app. And so we'll probably return to this subject all the time, like every episode until forever, possibly.
0: Not only is it one of the killer... Apps, if you will, of Bitcoin, but it is a flourishing market. There are so many options for self-custody from everything from multi-sig, somebody else holds a key for you to help you not lose it type services that are premium packaged and sold as such, all the way down to super competitive cold wallets where you store everything offline on an air-gapped wallet that never touches the internet. That range is just great because it means there's something at every comfort level with the whole solution, right? So for totally new users or people that have an immense amount of wealth to people that are just holding a few sats and want to play around with the technology.
1: This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on January 20th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with who? Oh, it's me. Hey, hi, Chris. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. In today's episode, we are going to cover how the U.S. Treasury is staving off a partial default on U.S government debt payments and spending triggered by the debt ceiling that is a sort of arbitrary rule that Congress imposes on the US Treasury. In economics, we have a paper on cryptocurrency and regulation, which is not actually that interesting, but I read it, so I'm going to talk about it. (laughs) And we also have Arthur Hayes, the founder of the Bitfinex Exchange. His latest article, Bouncy Castle, has some interesting economic forecasting. I think that people who are thinking about the Federal Reserve and interest rates and where financial markets are going. We'll find this article interesting. In technology, we have an awesome, awesome technical breakdown of how Luke Dasher's remote Linux server was compromised. This did not result in the loss of his Bitcoins, but it may have been a step in the process of an attacker stealing his Bitcoins. So that'll be quite technical. And if you're into Linux and servers, this is something to listen to. In privacy, we have read an article about Track, which is a serious violation of American civil liberties. A theme in the show is that financial privacy doesn't really exist. And Track is another sign of that lack of financial privacy. In Bitcoin education, we have some news that BIP39 wallet labels have been merged into Bitcoin Core. This is a great opportunity to talk about the Bitcoin improvement projects that have defined how Bitcoin wallets and addresses work and this is the latest improvement to that tech stack. And then we have some feedback and boosts and that's our show. It's going to be a great show and
0: I'm excited to throw out a theory at you when we get to that boring economic report that you uh, read. I read it too and I think it signals bad news for exchanges and cryptocurrency projects. But we'll get to that because we got a lot of other stuff to talk about too.
1: Well, let's start with this article from Reuters about the US Treasury. They've begun using what's called extraordinary cash management measures. And this means that they want to continue borrowing funds to keep the U.S. government functioning. But the U.S. Congress is very dysfunctional right now, and it looks like they might have trouble raising the U.S. debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is this arbitrary limit on the amount of debt that the U.S. Treasury can issue. It's basically a big political circus because it can be broken if they all agree. And it turns into a periodic political bargaining drama fest. And so the debt ceiling has never been removed. It has merely been raised. And I think that's because every few years, Congress has to raise the debt ceiling. And a few Congress members will realize that if everyone else is ready to raise it and they hold out, maybe they can get some concessions for their district. So it becomes a big horse trading game.
0: I recall a time during the Obama administration that They shut down all of the parks, state parks, national parks. It was really quite the fight. And I kind of worry that we're headed into a similar situation, which I have second order recession effect questions around. But here's my here's my initial concern. I think Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen blew it when she just told them how long they can take. Like, it's the worst negotiating tactic you could possibly make. But in the initial letter that she sent out a couple of weeks ago, where she warned that she was about to take extraordinary measures, which I think we should talk about what those are. But I just want to talk about this. She said, quote, while the Treasury is not currently able to provide an estimate of how long extraordinary measures will enable us to continue to pay the government's obligations, it is unlikely that cash and extraordinary measures will be exhausted before early June. Why would you write that and say it like that? That basically tells the Congress critters that they can play around until June.
1: I agree with you. I don't know what her strategy is there. Perhaps she felt that she was not able to simply provide a vague and troubling response because I think that if you're a civil servant or a political appointee, there is some responsibility not to panic the general populace by making extreme statements statements. And the market, perhaps? Yeah, the market. So maybe this felt responsible to her. Yeah. Well, how is she paying for this, Dad? How does she pay for
0: uh, this runway until June?
1: Well, it's quite simple. All you do is the Treasury stops paying its obligations to the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund and the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Fund. Wait a second. What? Well, some of the largest line items in the U.S. government budget are the pension funds for government employees and also for Social Security. So in a taste of what's to come, payments to these funds for the civil service and for postal workers have been suspended. And this won't immediately bankrupt those pension programs. But if that shortfall is not made up, then these pension programs will become insolvent much more quickly then is projected. And by the way, I believe that these pension funds and social security are going to be exhausted at current projections by 2035. That is very, very soon. Yeah. And that's assuming there aren't any accelerating factors like we are currently witnessing. Right. Like another recession, which tends to accelerate drawdowns from these funds and reduce funds flowing into them. If we have another recession or two in between, then the exhaustion date will probably jump forward quite a few years.
0: Yeah. I really kind of feel like I'm probably screwed. I mean, this is the exact kind of situation that's going to impact me around my retirement age. Um, not to mean make it about me, but this the timing just happens to work out that way, which I find to be interesting. And I find it gross that this is the first thing that gets cut. I'm sure it's due to like what she has the ability to cut back on and what she has discretion. It's just funny how it's, it's architected this way. You know, it's not maybe... Medical benefits get cut to all of Congress. Uh, Congress pay gets cut until they come to it. It seems like that would be the natural thing is stop paying Congress and until this situation is resolved. But no, that's not where we go. That's not what we do. And we only exacerbate this problem. So that way, whoever's in charge in the future has a much worse problem to
1: solve. I agree with you. I think that this is an interesting example of how debt problems, government budget problems are going to play out in the future, because the solution is to cut benefits, to renege on the social contract, to provide retirement benefits to citizens and civil servants who paid into pension programs expecting a certain pension. And the simple truth is that I believe most of those programs made completely unrealistic expectations around the financial performance of those portfolios. And so they promised way more in benefits than they can provide, while simultaneously the US government, I think particularly the Treasury, realized that all of these pension funds can be legally coerced to store their portfolios in U.S. government treasuries, basically a dumping ground of U.S. government debt. Since U.S. government debt has been at 0% for about 10 years, now it's up to, I think, 4.5%, which is, you know, pretty good return. At the same time, it's still a negative real rate because inflation is higher than the interest rate being paid on this debt. And that means in real terms, these portfolios are shrinking. So this is just a fundamental problem. These pension funds are not going to be solvent much longer. They're already insolvent in the sense that they will never be able to pay out all the liabilities that they have, but they're still liquid. So there doesn't seem to be any attempt to recapitalize these funds. Rather, they're just going to be run down and then probably everyone will learn at some big moment of crisis that, oh, hey, by the way, all those payments you made into your pension fund. Well, yeah, you're not getting any of that. Thanks for your service.
0: If everyone understood this situation, I think the conversations around Bitcoin would be flipped. You'd be silly for being skeptical of Bitcoin and all trusting in this house of cards when you understand all of this and you see it all laid out on the table and you're so right when you say what is happening right now is a preview of what's to come. So if you want to know what to prepare and plan for, watch this play out. This is what you should expect. And to me, the message has been just made obvious is I shouldn't expect to have anything that's anywhere close to covering my expenses when I retire. That's not happening. I don't expect it at all. I don't even expect any of the 401ks that any of my previous employers are really going to deliver on anything that's useful for my actual retirement. I got to figure out another solution. Could that be Bitcoin? Yeah. Well, let's stay humble, stack sats. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I guess in your retirement, you may need to sell some sats one day i hope not but it may happen maybe i need to get a new fancier rv i think that's how money works this idea (laughs) that oh i'll just borrow i'll just lever up on my volatile bitcoin and i'll never have to sell it i don't quite understand how that works it seems a little fantastical i have one scenario where it works you ready for this one okay all right so it's the year
0: 2037 and chris is retiring and Bitcoin is at $600,000, right? Well, if I've successfully stacked enough sets, then, you know, maybe I plan for like a $300,000 price drop, but that's still $300,000 Bitcoin, right? So it's like, it just depends on your perspective, I think. Yes, there will be volatility as long as it remains a free market. You know, it may not remain a free market. You have to keep that in mind. It may become a price-controlled market, but that we'll see where that goes. But if it remains a free dynamic market, there will always be volatility as a natural result of it being a free market. but it just, it's a different scale. If it's a million dollar Bitcoin and you have a $400,000 drawdown, well, that's still a pretty good looking uh, return on investment from where I'm sitting.
1: But what you're saying is if you didn't want to sell your Bitcoin, but you wanted to access that liquidity, you take one Bitcoin worth $600,000 and you'd use it as collateral to borrow $200,000 Yeah, two hundred. Yes, exactly. And so the price could fall a lot and you still wouldn't be liquidated. You wouldn't want to be all your Bitcoin, right? That's why you got to stack sets because
0: you want to be able to keep some. Plus, you know, at that point, I'm also assuming there's multi-sig lending options. So I'm not just getting like rugged all of a sudden when the price fluctuates. Right. I mean, I'm making some assumptions
1: on the safety of it. I see. So it's not like you would send your Bitcoin to a company if it were possible to do this on chain with some sort of multi-sig. Maybe, dare I say, an oracle. Maybe this happens on a drive chain. Who knows? Mm. But. You're sort of using the technology. So you're, you're not actually so exposed to being rugged. It's really more the volatility alone that you're exposed to. Exactly.
0: And I think that's totally doable because you've seen, I mean, we see ways of doing it potentially in the future now. And I'm thinking this is 2037, right? So I'm thinking this is doable to a degree. But I think you should also plan for being able to sell it. You have to consider that as well. So to your point, you are right. One day it is something you have to consider. That's the argument of these exchanges and all of these blockchains that go to Congress and argue for this or that regulation is they're essentially saying, you know, this is going to be an economy of the future. You don't want to miss out on this because they're assuming people
1: are going to be selling these assets. And on the subject of selling assets, there is a paper on cryptocurrency and regulation. It is by Brian D. Feinstein and Kevin Werbach. I don't believe I'm familiar with them, but they're both from the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. This is, I believe, considered the top business school in the United States, even higher than Harvard Business School, from what I've heard. But this uh, paper is basically exploring the hypothesis that when you regulate cryptocurrency markets, you reduce the amount of activity, the trading, in the regulated market, and you push it into an unregulated space.
0: It's the argument that, look, if we don't figure this out and if we try to control this too much, all of this economic opportunity is going to go outside our borders and outside our jurisdiction, and then you'll have no control and no profit.
1: And this is the argument of a lot of VC types, crypto business types who say, oh, we want regulatory clarity, which basically means please say that what we're doing is legal, but please don't stifle this market with too much regulation. And I think there have been examples of hostile regulation that has stifled markets. There's the New York bit license law, which basically meant that unless you have insider connections to New York state financial regulators, you can't operate a regulated crypto business in New York. And I think that did result in Kraken and some other companies moving out of New York and a lot of companies not offering services to New York residents. At the same time, you know, it's sort of interesting because Gemini, which is the Winklevoss's exchange, it is a bit licensed regulated business. They marketed themselves as the regulated safe crypto exchange, and they just got sued by the SEC along with Genesis, for offering unregistered securities with their earned product. So this is kind of an aside, but it's just interesting that the most heavily regulated exchange violated securities laws.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it, uh, but yeah. And it just seemed obvious too. I mean, we said it on the show, it's an issue. But I guess Gemini just want to see how far they could push it because, you know, you don't want to stifle innovation.
1: But there's also a competing view. And that view is that a thoughtfully designed regulatory framework can essentially protect the public and protect the market and create a healthy, vibrant market that is not being manipulated or controlled by big players. And this is good. This will lead to more activity. Yeah.
0: That sounds nice. Where do you get one of those?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that argument because I believe that there can be thoughtful approaches to regulation. But let's look at the data. And so these researchers create a model. They try to look at trading volume in crypto markets worldwide. This is obviously incredibly, incredibly difficult. And a lot of the trading volume is false. And as a result, this paper is nearly 100 pages long. So it's quite a read. But their conclusion is you essentially see no difference between regulation and non-regulation in cryptocurrency activity. Regulation doesn't seem to have any effect on in-country trading volume. When a country starts to regulate crypto, it doesn't seem to have any effect on global trading volume. So it's weird, Because you don't see necessarily trading moving to unregulated areas you just see almost no effect. And I think that's a, an interesting potential observation, but I but I think you can explain it in a couple different ways.
0: I mean, I do think this is a particularly hard thing to measure because um, you're measuring the environment in the state where one of the largest exchanges, will, and well, and actually two, right, or three, and I don't remember where, where uh, Kraken is, but we have exchanges that are overseas right now due to likely regulation reasons. Like some of them, I'm sure, would love to be full-blown U.S. corporations with headquarters in Silicon Valley if they could, pretending like they're one of the big tech companies. They don't want to be hiding out, but they are. So it's like you're measuring something when the state has already been altered, the environment has already been altered by the presence of or the lack of presence of regulation or type of regulation. It could come down to differences in these types of coins are more often traded on offshore exchanges and U.S. regulated exchanges maybe tend to focus on these types of coins. And but if you just look at it from a pure volume standpoint, that signal doesn't really come out. So I'm not sure I have questions around that. If the research is accurate, if, if what the proposition that this research puts forward in this hundred papers is that it doesn't make any difference, so therefore you really shouldn't buy the argument that if you regulate too much, it'll drive it offshores, because that doesn't seem to be true according to them. But I think it undercuts a lot of the proof of stake cabal that seems to constantly be called upon to testify in Congress testimonies, it kind of undercuts a lot of their arguments about regulation and how it could impact this future economy. I think if you look at it from a property asset standpoint, like Bitcoin is, I don't really think their research has any impact on that because it's not generally a speculative asset long term. I mean, sure, there's day traders that are screwing around with it, but it's not a long term speculative asset.
1: It's hard to study cryptocurrency trading because there's so much wash trading and fake data in the market as bucket shop exchanges try to attract customers by giving the appearance of deep liquidity on their platforms. At the same time, the way that they're building this research is they're essentially creating an econometric model. And one criticism that we have expressed on the show is with the modern economic approach of trying to build pseudoscience models to explain economic activity. This obsession with using arbitrary models to explain and simulate market activity as a way to try to present economics as a hard science, when in fact it's a soft science, it's a social science. And that doesn't mean it has no value. In fact, I think most valuable thought is quote unquote soft, you know, it is sort of contextual. And so I think this paper falls into the trap of trying to create a quote-unquote rigorous mathematical model and essentially putting in garbage data to a slightly garbage model and not really getting a very interesting result. I think another issue is that if adoption is growing everywhere simultaneously, it would be difficult to see the activity that you're displacing. Because even though you're displacing some activity, if general adoption and activity is growing everywhere, you know, you might miss what's being displaced because there are just new entrants who uh, haven't realized how crappy dealing with your regulation is. And they'll sort of put up with it for a (laughs) while before they move to another market. (laughs) <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. So it's just interesting to see research on, on this sort of question. I think if you're a total nerd, you should definitely read this story. And if not, I hope that our summary was good enough. Yeah, maybe we'll read it this time so you don't have to. Now, I know you have trouble with Arthur. I'm
0: shocked. I'm appalled. Two weeks in a row? What are you doing to me over here?
1: Arthur is under house arrest, so I think he's writing more, frankly. Uh, <laughs> that's what it is. There's more
0: Arthur to go around. OK, fair enough. This one, though, I think I also agree with. Maybe there's something wrong with me, but Arthur kind of is pouring a little bit of cold water on everybody getting excited about the CPI rate. He says, yeah, there is a recent steady down trend, and that's looking pretty good. People are getting real excited about that, as uh, esteemed Lord Powell is looking for every opportunity to pivot away from his current quantitative t- tightening policies. It does kind of feel like that. I agree. But he says, "I'm not so sure these forecasters are right." I think his position is on the whole the situation long term is still like we are in a general inflationary environment. I I tend to agree with that. And I think one of the reasons why the market's so happy right now is just because of the way Next month, we're recalculating how CPI is done again, like you covered last week. I think the market is expecting that to mean a lower print. And so they're just kind of feeling a little general, in general, a little bit better, although that's cooled since last episode.
1: Jerome Powell is, of course, the chairman of the Federal Open Markets Committee that sets the interest rate that the Federal Reserve offers on various durations of U.S. government securities and the interest rate target they set on. I think generally the younger, the sort of uh, lower duration securities, such as the U.S. Treasury two-year and the U.S. Treasury five-year, these are used as a proxy for financial conditions, whether financial conditions are tight or loose. And loose means stocks go up, risk assets go up, tight means risk assets sell off. And Arthur shares a chart of the U.S. CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is used as a proxy for inflation. And this chart is rolling over. It's peaked in June 2022, and it's shooting down. And June 2022 is a really interesting month because friend of the show, I say he's a friend, we've never talked to him, Jeffrey Schneider has pointed out that many forward-looking indicators of global economic activity rolled over in June 2022. So while the... CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is probably not a very good proxy for inflation because it's basically used by the U.S. government to determine adjustments for paying pension benefits, Social Security benefits, and other adjustments like the TIPS. Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, these are special bonds of the Treasury issues that will pay you a variable rate on it based on the CPI. So these are kind of inflation protected bonds. These all depend on the CPI, and so this creates every incentive for the CPI to always be taken in quite low by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But the CPI rolls over. It peaks in June 2022, and then it starts moving slower. And so everyone who is speculating on financial assets are saying, oh boy, come on, Fed pivot. Can we please stop tightening financial markets and start turning on the Fed sanctioned money to pump asset prices again, they're getting excited. And so while we don't think the CPI is a very good measure, we think it is perhaps directionally important. So what are the potential outcomes to the CPI falling? I think the CPI falling could lead to the Federal Reserve pausing its rate policy. So it might just stop raising rates and that might result in financial markets getting a little bit more bullish, a little bit more confident, and the price of financial assets increasing in general. That's sort of one outcome. But what Arthur makes a point of saying is that Powell has been pretty clear that he doesn't really use the CPI as his measure of inflation. What he seems to be more interested in is a relationship between measures of wage increase and core CPI, which is a much more limited counting of CPI that doesn't really include energy. Basically, this means that if... Powell is really in control of the FOMC committee, which I believe he is, they'll likely continue hiking interest rates until we see real losses in income in American citizens. Another way to say that is they really want more people to be out of work. They want to increase the unemployment rate. And the argument I've heard for this which frankly I find a little odious, is that the natural quote-unquote rate of inflation is 5%. How do you come up with that number? It's completely arbitrary. It's it's a stupid thing to say, I think. And so right now, since we're under 5% unemployment, did I say inflation or unemployment? I think you said unemployment. I mean, I'm following you. So if unemployment is under 5%, it means that everybody who wants a job has a job, including people who are quote-unquote unemployable. You know, people who you'd never hire this person, but the labor market is so tight that you'll hire that guy who, you know, cracks rude jokes, doesn't do his job, and picks his nose in front of customers. I just don't buy this at all. Because I think that this argument that unemployment is way too low, it kind of falls prey to the fact that the unemployment rate has also been negotiated downwards over time. There are different measures of unemployment, and the the one that's being used right now, I think is called U3, Unemployment 3. Please boost in and correct me if I had that wrong, but essentially it's kind of a narrow measure of unemployment, and it doesn't take into account people who have been looking for a job for a really long time and basically given up and are somehow subsisting at a very low level of consumption. You know, maybe they're homeless at this point, and they're not counted as unemployed because they aren't looking for a job. So they're just something else. They're just jobless or something, and it's not unemployment. But if we broaden the measure of unemployment to include people who really did their darndest to try and find a job and they never could, then the unemployment rate goes up a lot. And the thing is, we've had a lot of people who couldn't find work over the past 12 years, because over the past... 12, 15 years, globalization, the moving of industrial jobs to China, the hollowing out of the IT and tech industry as jobs were remoted to India, whole call centers, whole IT departments were moved to India. This affected the American job market. I think the U.S. has had a very weak job market for a very long time. And so I think that these common measures of unemployment are not really very realistic. And I'm not saying I know what the real number is. I just think that there's never really been a great incentive for a neutral, nonpartisan body to gather data about the real state of the U.S. economy. There's always sort of a incentive in how to report these numbers. And I feel that trying to make centralized decisions about how to manage the economy based on data that is structurally biased is probably a really bad idea.
0: And I'm sorry for that digression. No, I think it's well said. That is one of the major concerns I've had. And I bet a lot of people listening have this. It's like driving down the freeway with your dash telling you you're doing 35 when you're actually doing 85. It just feels extremely dangerous because they're making massive centralized policy decisions. I'd say faulty sets of data. But also, Dad, the other thing that really concerns me is delayed sets of data. Like in the last week, Microsoft has laid off 10,000 people. Amazon has just laid off another batch of people. Google is laying off a batch of people that just reported this morning. I mean, we're talking huge, huge numbers right now. I don't know if you've seen this website. I want to just kind of put it out there for everybody in the audience to check this from time to time. Layoffs.fyi. 55,324 tech layoffs. Just tech alone in 2023 so far, 55,000 people laid off in just tech so far here in the Pacific Northwest. We have different firms around just sort of like adjacent to the tech industry and they're laying everybody off too. But you don't see reports about that because, you know, they're 10, 15, 20, 100 people companies. And that data won't really be reflected in the official numbers for another month or two, like it, it takes a while for all of that to actually make it into little Jerome's hands. And I find that also very alarming. So not only is the number skewed, because we all know people who have been basically unemployed since 2008. So, you know, those numbers are wrong. And then you know that they're delayed with what, what they do get. And then you know that the CPIs get and the core CPI numbers get manipulated as well, or at least pushed downward. I just find that to be one of the most alarming things, and I think a lot of people listening have had to thought of this, too. We know the state of reality is these numbers are not reliable.
1: Right, and this gets to another theme we talk about a lot, which is that we're currently in a society where the people... Who make decisions are elites. They go to different schools than most of us. They lead incredibly different lives than the rest of us. And so they don't see the problems inherent in our current economic and social system because they're insulated from them. They live in a world that's been designed around them. And so when we complain about poor economic opportunities, the cost of living, the difficulty of affording the basics to raise a family, they don't see it because everything's going well for them and their friends. So to return to Arthur's article, Arthur sees two Fed pivot scenarios. The first pivot is Jerome Powell decides to use the CPI as his measure of inflation He pauses rate hikes because since CPI generally is affected by monetary policy by a one to two-year lag, if it's already trending downwards, then everything that was done one to two years ago to tighten financial conditions is going to push CPI lower. So he can just stop now, hands off, and things sort of settle, and maybe there is a mild recession. And that's kind of the soft landing argument. That's the Rosie case. And then there is another case, and that other case is that Either the current level of tightening or how it continues to tighten causes something in our fragile, complicated financial world to break. And this breakage creates the potential for financial contagion. And the Fed pivots very quickly, slashes rates, starts bailouts again, starts quantitative easing again. And this second scenario is Arthur's base case. And I tend to agree with him. You can listen to his analysis because he's very interested in trading, how to trade these markets. And Chris and your Bitcoin, Dad. We don't even try. This guy is a professional trader. We don't think anyone who isn't a professional should be trading because you're generally just giving your money to people like Arthur. But what he points out is that in the crisis scenario, it's very difficult to protect yourself financially from those crises. You kind of just have to hodl through them, and you're going to experience huge drawdowns in any asset you hold. And so this whole article is kind of about Arthur's thinking as he buys the bottom in certain assets. He trades out of Bitcoin into U.S. treasuries. I mean, he's doing all sorts of trades here. This is kind of the background that uh, motivates his trading strategies. I think it's an interesting view on markets. I like it because... Arthur has skin in the game, and I think he's gotten into a position, and now he's trying to get us all into the position he's in so that it becomes reality. But I mean, these are very understandable incentives, so I'm completely happy to read his argument for why we should all pile into his trade.
0: It seems pretty well thought out, and I tend to agree. I actually, well, I I can't, I don't know, the Fed has been pretty clear that they're not going to taper down and that we could probably expect a 25 basis rate hike. Next month or whenever. they I don't know when they do it again. Seems like they've been pretty clear on that. So they would have to be, they'd have to explain why they're pivoting from that pretty explicitly. And I think if they go through with the basis, the 25 basis point hike, I would expect that to reflect negatively in the Bitcoin price, right? As it begins to add fragility to the market, the risk of that will be reflected in the Bitcoin price until a pivot occurs. And then at that point, if a pivot were to occur on the Fed, then people would pile into Bitcoin like it was going out of style. And I think it would create quite the bull
1: run. And I think the thing about Powell from anecdotal things I've heard about him, about things he said, about people who know him, who've gossiped a little, is that Powell is not a super cynical person. He's very wealthy. The system has been very kind to him, obviously. He's the Fed chairman. They don't hire outsiders. But he actually may believe that by being very tough on quote-unquote inflation right now, he is, in a sense, saving the legacy financial system from the type of instability that it encountered in the 70s and early 80s. Because, frankly, anyone With an open mind can conclude that our financial system will not survive another 70s, another inflationary 70s decade with all the instability, both political and economic, that comes from that. And the reason is because the financial system has something like four times as much debt as it did in the 1970s. It's really very levered up. It's much more fragile. And so I think that it's likely that Powell sees himself as a hero, as someone who's restoring the Fed's credibility because let's not forget. Since Alan Greenspan in the 1990s, the Fed has just been blowing a huge 30-year financial bubble. That's what they've been doing. Their, their stated policy was inflating asset prices to create a wealth effect so that those wealthy people who got rich on financial assets would spend more money into the real economy. It is literal trickle-down economics a la Ronald Reagan. Trickle-down economics have been examined by many economists on the right, on the left, through many different schools of economic thought, and no one has credibly demonstrated the trickle-down economics work and it's just the opposite if you give money to rich people you will make rich people richer and everyone else poorer because money you know it's a token that represents your claim on all physical reality. So the person who has the most money has the most claim on all the physical stuff in the world. It's just pretty basic stuff.
0: I'm sorry, are you talking about Ethereum? I can't I I think I've lost track here. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: <yeah>. Oh. oh. <laughs> so, I think that Arthur may be right and that the Fed is likely to continue tightening until they really break something important. And just like think for a moment how crazy this is. We just spend 20 minutes talking about this guy named Jerome Powell and his beliefs and emotions are, in a sense, driving the financial markets of the entire world. That's insane. That's so crazy.
0: I think we'll look back at it. And just to make it simple, we won't talk about how there was, you know, a, a board. We'll just say, well, you know, 30 years ago, we would wait for one man to come out and tell us all what the price of money was going to be. <laughs> you know, that's how we'll explain this crazy system one day.
1: Yeah, it's like the, the Romans making decisions based on what the entrails of birds look like if you cut them out on an altar. Seems crazy in retrospect.
0: Yeah, 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 you know, I've seen some crazy fan pictures of uh, old Jerome now, too. He's becoming a bit of like fanfic out there. People are throwing him through the uh, stable diffusion image generator and they're coming up with hero
1: poses for Jerome. I'll send one to you in our chat so you can you can enjoy it. Can we make some merch based on this? Can we, we, really, we make should a, be. a hat or something? This is a total merch opportunity.
0: In the last couple of weeks, the story about the Bitcoin core developer who lost 200 Bitcoin has been making the rounds. And Luke engaged with a researcher to do a little deep dive to try to figure out what might have happened. That researcher inevitably ended up on one of Luke's servers and has made some remarkable discoveries here that I think is is a real classic security story in that if you are in IT, if you are in specifically system administration or the security area of IT, this is a lesson right here to really kind of dig into how this person was targeted, the tools that they used and how they island hopped by from one spot to another spot to another spot to inevitably walk away with 200
1: Bitcoin. And we don't have the full picture because essentially Luke Dasher's Bitcoin were stolen off of his home workstation. So this was his first mistake. He had a workstation that he was doing a lot of stuff on and he also had... 200 Bitcoin stored in a wallet on that workstation, a hot wallet. So this is a big no-no. At the same time, we're not super surprised because generally people learn Bitcoin security when they come into Bitcoin. And so since Luke has been in Bitcoin for a long time, his security practices were probably appropriate for Bitcoin when it was much cheaper. But now that it's more expensive, you have sophisticated threat actors specifically targeting him. So his security was completely insufficient for that situation.
0: And can I just underscore that for a second? Because you are totally right. Security was not a big I mean, it was a discussion, but it's not it's not taken. It was not taken anywhere as seriously as it was today because they were not worth anything. And I think we should use that same lens to look at where Bitcoin might be in a decade. And so that's why dad and I constantly advocate for cold storage hardware wallets, because perhaps Bitcoin, maybe you have a Bitcoin. If you're lucky, you've got a Bitcoin or if you're really lucky, you've got more. And it's around twenty thousand dollars today as we record. But if in a decade that's maybe five hundred thousand dollars or four hundred or you know what? Maybe we're really lucky. You know, maybe it's like a million It becomes more and more of a target as time goes on. And so you kind of have to think about that. And whatever you deploy today, while it doesn't have to be perfect, it needs to kind of keep in mind that maybe one day, if you're lucky, it's going to be worth a lot more. And you also want to build something where maybe you could move it to a better solution one day if you need to, because we will probably have another concept of how to securely store this stuff in another 10 years.
1: That's completely right. So... Right now, we think that using a hardware wallet, like the cold card, do we recommend any other hardware wallets? I mean, not really. Not really. <laughs> there is
0: a couple, right? Like, which, What is the other one where you can, is it not the Trezor, but is it the other one that you can flash the
1: Bitcoin-only firmware on? I mean, that's better, but I think nothing really beats the cold card. Sure. There's the BitBox. I tried one that was Android based. It was super janky. would never recommend it to anybody. Yeah. So, I mean, the one of the best Bitcoin hardware wallets is an old laptop that only does Bitcoin stuff. You know, that's a really great hardware wallet and it doesn't have Wi-Fi on it or something.
0: I don't love mobile devices. I know some of our listeners use their mobile, like an old Android that they've put a, like maybe they put Lineage or Graphene OS on there and they're using that as a Bitcoin wallet. My only concern with that is that there are circumstances where you go to use that phone if it's an old device and it just doesn't power up anymore. They can die. The batteries can also expand and bloat and fail. And then how do you get to that? So you then essentially need to be backing that phone up in some way and then how are you protecting that backup and
1: yeah you have a seed phrase but if you've done like labeling of your transactions actually we'll get to that in the bitcoin education segment you'll lose all that labeling so Just to return to Luke, essentially what happened is Luke had a cloud server. So he had a physical server in a data center, and I think it was his dedicated physical machine. And in November of 2022 of last year, he actually tweeted that his machine had been compromised. This wasn't a, oh no, my Bitcoin had been stolen. This was two months before that happened. So basically, the attacker entered the data center or was working in the data center or owned the data center, who knows, and they rebooted Luke's server. And when they rebooted it, they inserted a USB or something and they booted from the USB. So that USB was now running the operating system and it could see Luke's operating system, which wasn't running. And his operating system was not encrypted, I think, or they bypassed the encryption and so that meant that they could modify any file on his server operating system and then they went ahead and they modified i think nine files and these files you know they all have very innocuous names But essentially what they did was they inserted a program written in Perl that creates kind of a a backdoor into the system. And it runs under the name rsyslogd, which is a common logging system on Linux. If I see that in the list of processes on a Linux server, that's very normal. It's sort of in the, what's it called, system level user account section of the ps-elf output. And so you, you, you generally sort of glaze by it. You never even notice it. But this process was actually a reverse shell. It was a, a shell, which is a program that allows you to manipulate a Linux system at a very basic level. But it was reaching out across the Internet and making itself available to the attacker's computer.
0: It's interesting that they were able to get physical access. I mean, that tells you right there. Luke was being specifically targeted. I think this is one of the reasons why I, I'm a little I'm worried for all the Bitcoin developers who are out there with their real username, their real, real ID out there, because inevitably they can become a target because it's pretty safe to assume any longtime Bitcoin core developer is going to have a stash. The other thing is that once somebody gets physical access to the box and they boot uh, off a USB drive like that, they own the system. It is no longer your server. You're just using their server. And so not only could they set up reverse shell, which is super easy to do, super easy to do, they could have set up an ability to look at all of his command history. They could read all of his processes. They could even potentially, depending on how they set things up, if they have uh,
1: system access, could read memory contents. I mean, it's just the list is never ending. The thing is, this... Security diagnosis is really interesting if you work with IT infrastructure. Oh, and by the way, like some of the programs that, are, that, that, that were left behind, I mean, they're just really well written. I love this shadow strike call, which uh, modifies the firewall. It's actually written to take advantage of whatever three firewall solutions you're using, whether it's Firewall D, IP tables, or UFW. And it's just very clean. I mean, I, I don't know if I write Bash script this cleanly. It's very nice. <laughs> yeah,
0: and it's got a great name too, right? Shadow Strike. And, and then you got, you got Night Raven, which uh, Night Raven installs a little set UID Bash script, which a uh, little Bash shell. And when you give something the uh, set UID flag, It's like giving it like a file permission that
1: says this thing can do system level actions. Just based on the file permissions. Well, it can do something special. The set UID means that it can run w- like a certain command with elevated privileges, right? Right. And it could be like high-level root user privileges. You can restrict that. You know, it is possible to restrict that so that, and it's it's reasonable to say, okay, well, someone needs to run one elevated command, but they can't run every elevated command. But this set UID basically gave unrestricted root access. But it wasn't obvious. If you look at the permissions, you might miss that little S in there, which then um, um, you know, that's the giveaway.
0: You'd have to go looking, too. You
1: know, you'd have to go looking at the
0: permissions. You'd have to p- specifically request LS to show you that. I mean, it's um, it's just easy to miss. And then when you combine it, apparently, with a lack of mandatory access controls with something like SE Linux, then these kind of things, once they get on there,
1: can just do anything they want. Not to go too technical, but it looks like Luke definitely didn't have SE Linux enabled, which I understand. SE Linux is really a pain to deal with and very few people understand it well. And the thing is, being a Bitcoin core developer and being a Linux server administrator, these are completely different things. They're completely different skill sets, even though they both involve computers. You would think they'd have a lot of overlap. I don't think they necessarily do. But also, I think that most individual users of Linux outside of an enterprise, you're not running any sort of threat detection software on your Linux box, because, you know, threat detection software, you know, is technically another backdoor. So I think many many people just work with the assumption like, hey, I'll harden my system, and I won't be compromised. But I'm looking at this attack, and I am pretty sure that it would have been caught by a threat detection system. Because the weird... Set UIG bit. That definitely would have set off an alarm bell. There were two files in uh, slash user sbin that were modified. Two programs that were modified. That would have set off an alarm bell. Those are generally hashed and compared against a list of approved hashes in any sort of threat detection system. So this is obviously looking backwards. I'm sure the next attack, you know, will will be even more sophisticated potentially. But there are definitely things you can do, and you know, not to too critical of Luke, but it seems like he is missing some some relatively basic security precautions here.
0: Yeah. Again, like you said, being a developer doesn't make you a security engineer. And I think Luke, I mean, I'm sure it's crossed his mind when he has 200 Bitcoin on his hard drive. He probably had a threat model that his risks Surface was his machine and he needed to have a secure system. And I, I I understand it was a Gen 2 box, which probably indicates he was a pretty sophisticated Linux user. Probably, He probably had a pretty good high-level confidence in the security of his box, probably kept it up to date. So, you know, got patches right away and he probably thought, all right, this is better than, you know, putting on an Android phone or something. But what I don't think his threat model included is that that workstation would end up connecting to an owned box. And that's inevitably what took them down, is while they couldn't get physical access to his workstation, they could get physical access to his server. They could own that, which is just impossible to defend against remotely. And once they completely compromised that remote server that he SSHs into to work on and that he uses for application hosting and other things, they had him. And they, he never even knew they had him. They were able to run ex- uh, applications that monitored him, that, that sent back remote information, and They're able to have a persistent presence on that box for a bit. He never knew because it wasn't in his threat model. And, like to your point, he didn't
1: properly prepare to monitor that system because that system wasn't his threat model for his Bitcoin. Right. Okay. I see. Because he assumed that maybe if my remote server gets owned, that would be bad. But my Bitcoin isn't on my remote server. It's on my workstation, which is behind my firewall. But his workstation was connecting definitely directly to the own server. And because he's publicly associated with Bitcoin, he becomes a target, even, even if he doesn't
0: realize it. And as time goes on, he becomes more of a target because it becomes more valuable. So the target on his back only grows in size.
1: But how does the own box piggyback back to your workstation? I, I just don't know exactly the mechanics for that. Does Do they have to sort of trick you into running an executable that'll set up Darksaber and Shadowstrike and everything on your workstation? Or do you think it's something else? I mean, to really know, Luke would have to, to give this researcher access to his desktop. I
0: kind of wish he would. Um, I wonder if it isn't as complicated as that. I wonder if it isn't something like Luke initially tweeted about thinking his PGP key had been compromised. You know, so maybe there was just information on the server that was leveraged to uh you know get to a system. who knows? I think the real way to know would be to find out by doing research, maybe we would discover that software was installed there as well.
1: That's true. could be quite the story because I guess since Luke was using his PGP key to encrypt his Bitcoin wallet, he may have had a false sense of security that that encryption would protect him. So it's possible that he had SSH keys or other credentials on his remote server that were encrypted. But if the PGP key were compromised, then everything could be unencrypted.
0: It's a very, very sad, expensive lesson. And it's going to take years for him to you know, emotionally recover from that loss, if he ever does.
1: Or financially recover. Can you imagine oh, yeah. losing yeah. $2 million? My gosh. Was it $2 million? Is that what the total was? Sure. Goodness. At bear market prices. Don't even think about what that was worth at the top of the bull market.
0: Yeah, that's really something. I'm... Uh... Yeah, that's, I've, you know, we all, we all, or all the, you know what, a lot of early folks end up losing their Bitcoin just a matter of time. And it's hard to get yourself to move it, you know, when you're, when you've got your Bitcoin and it's working for you. And I could see maybe Luke fell into this trap too. Every time you move that much Bitcoin, it's probably very, very anxiety invoking. Like it's probably a kind of a scary thing to do to move 200 Bitcoin. And so I could see how he just puts it off and he puts it off until it was too late. I feel from there too.
1: I totally sympathize because once you have a security solution you never want to touch it again. It's stressful. So I think that one of the morals here is to keep learning, keep trying new things. And eventually, like you have to develop skills before you need them. Because if you have to deploy the thing and it's an emergency and you haven't developed the skills, that's how your dad burned a lot of coins in a multisig. So don't do that. Learn from us, learn from Luke. Just keep the mind fresh and trying new things and... You're going to be fine.
0: And remember, you can just play around with a few sats. I mean, that's what I tell myself. And yeah, it is expensive. You know, uh, I was actually just thinking about this a couple of days ago because I was playing around with a couple of different wallets, messing around with their lightning capabilities. I bet you I burned about $35 in fiat fun coupons just playing around. But in my mind, that's a valuable education. So it's worth the $35. And then later, if I ever want to move much larger sums into these wallets, I know I've got the whole thing worked out. So it was worth the 35 bucks to figure it out. And it's something I can use for years.
1: Our last story is a privacy nightmare. And I think we had heard rumors of this for a while, but the article came out in the Wall Street Journal two days ago. And essentially, there is a nonprofit called TRAC. It's hard to believe that this isn't, it's like not even an official government program, but it's called the Transaction Record Analysis Center. And it was set up by the Arizona State Attorney General's office in 2014. Initially, it was part of a settlement with Western Union, which is a money-transmitting business, and it was designed to combat cross-border drug trafficking with Mexico. And what's happened is some scope creep. TRAC has expanded. It allows access to its records to up to 600 law enforcement agencies. And the problem is that TRAC essentially gets bulk data from Western Union, MoneyGram, Daleks, and Euronet, and I think some other companies too. It, this isn't an exhaustive list. It gets bulk financial data of all the transactions meeting certain criteria, generally transactions over $500, which, you know, with inflation, $500 is quickly becoming not as much money as it used to be. Just a aside, I was at the grocery store recently and I saw some good deals and I bought some, some nice cheese as well. And I spent $120. And I was like, man, I got some real good deals for like two bags of groceries. And I remember when I was a kid, $100 would fill up a shopping cart to the brim with my mom. Like we'd go to the grocery store, the cart would be overflowing. And, you know, we pack it up. It would be like, I don't know, six or seven bags of groceries. And she'd be like, oh, a hundred bucks. That was an expensive shop. But now a hundred bucks on a deal gets you two bags of groceries, you know? Yeah, we had the same experience recently.
0: Sixty bucks for a dinner that used to cost us thirty dollars. You know, now to take the, the wife and three kids out. Anywhere I go, it's a hundred bucks if we go to a sit-down restaurant and it's sixty dollars at a fast food restaurant.
1: This track center is getting bulk data from money transmitting businesses, and then it's giving it without any controls to six hundred law enforcement agencies. And this data has everybody's name, address. Not to be conspiratorial, but there are many, many documented cases of law enforcement officers abusing their position. So if you're dealing with personally sensitive information like financial records and addresses and names. If you're a business, you have to be very careful and very controlled in who has access to this information. But Track basically gives this information to any law enforcement agency who asks, and they don't do any sort of basic due diligence on why do you need this? Do you have a warrant? Whatever. No, they just give it. So basically, this is an example of how there are no controls at the federal level over personal financial information. It is just there for the taking. And it's definitely going to be abused because while this track organization was set up for combating cross-border drug trafficking, it's now being used for everything. It's totally out of its mandate. I think this is an example of how financial privacy doesn't really exist in the traditional financial system. This is a crisis, you know, and maybe people haven't been directly hurt by the leak of this information. But the thing is, this track database. If it hasn't been hacked already, it will be soon. So it's already available to any law enforcement agency to do whatever they like with it. I mean, they can do preventative policing with this data. They can go through these transactions and try to find transactions that they think might be associated with illegal activity. No one's coming to them and reporting a crime. They are just passively scanning the data. This is Orwellian. They're passively scanning the data to find people to investigate
0: might as well keep this going. I mean, this feels like the inevitable result of the war on terror that kicked off after 9-11. It's like you create this huge, ginormous apparatus and government agencies like that, they only go in one direction. They only get bigger. And so inevitably they have to go in this direction. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that it's not just the full names of the sender and the recipient as well as the transaction amount. It could also potentially include account details in some circumstances. And then you combine this with the reality that they can also, without warrant, get access to your location information through private companies that are reselling your cellular tower location information. And so they can combine all kinds of fun little data points. Uh, As we have seen, the FBI has several cases that are in process right now where they just got the location information for everyone in an area and they just investigated all of them and assumed they were guilty and went after all of them and then they had to prove innocent. Like it's crazy what's happening. And it's the machines only getting bigger. And this is why we bang on about privacy all the time. But what's really striking here is this is what they're doing with the existing really kind of opaque, kind of clunky legal system. Imagine what they could do with a CBDC. Imagine If all of this was a CBDC and the information rich environment that they could get.
1: Right. Because this sort of surveillance is after the fact. With a CBDC, you have real-time monitoring and you can add spend policies to certain people. It's such a civil liberties nightmare. Anyone who's talking about CBDCs has, in my view, discredited themselves. Because if you think that there's any benefit to a system that is so perfectly built for social and political control, then you're either an idiot or I don't know what, you're acting in bad faith because you don't build a machine that is perfect for controlling the masses and then say, oh, but we would never use it that way. Yes, you will. That's what it was built for. That's how it works. Just down the freeway from us,
0: uh, Ron Wyden of Oregon said this. He said that this allows the government to, quote, serve itself at an all-you-can-eat buffet of Americans' personal financial data while bypassing the normal protections for Americans' privacies.
1: Maybe we should have just quoted him instead of our take on this article. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's worth a read because... It's also an
0: example of how these things escalate. I think scope creep is a real nice way to put it. You know, it starts, it seems like a good idea. You know, we're going to penalize Western Union and part of that, they're going to have to work with us and we're going to be able to track all this and have insight into this. And then it grows into now all these transactions with 600 law agencies, no warrant required. It's just a monster now. And there's so many data brokers in the credit card industry already that they can get information from either by purchasing it or with a warrant. Like they can really build quite a complete picture of your life through your financial transactions and your cellular records, and they just, like wh- like
1: Ron Wyden says, they're at an all-you-can-eat buffet these days. And you haven't done anything wrong. Not yet. Just one th- final thought. You said that Scope Creep, since the War on Terror you only see government agencies and law enforcement getting larger, doing more things, infringing more on individual rights. I, I think that there is a time when that reverses, and that reverses in moments of government balance sheet crisis. The issues with paying for pension programs, for for government social programs, you know, this is going to be painful for all of us who, like it or not, we rely on these programs to to some degree. But Law enforcement is another program that will be cut in this situation. It probably won't be cut as much as it should be, perhaps, but it will be cut. And so while no one is really looking forward to the financial and monetary volatility that likely awaits our future, there will be some important sort of balances and repercussions of this that will not be all bad. Like, it's not terrible if there are constraints on government spending that do, in a sense, incentivize better allocations Of money. And I don't mean that in some sort of like we should run the world like a corporation way. What I mean is these government programs that are performing mass surveillance, I don't think they're really helping too many people. They certainly help the law enforcement officers who are employed by them and the companies that sell hardware and tools and services to them. But I don't think they're really helping voters. And so in a tighter environment, we might get to a situation where the political consensus is listen, if we start cutting Social Security, we're going to get voted out of office. Let's cut some of these crazy surveillance programs instead. So there might be some silver linings here. I'll leave it at that.
0: I hope you're right. I mean, if that takes a 25 or 50 basis point hike, And uh, $10,000 Bitcoin, I'll happily stack sats and watch some of these institutions get a little uh, thinner. I'm a little skeptical, but I'd love to see it. It does seem like we've really, when you really kind of stop, it's hard to even appreciate the scale at which society has been influenced by the easy money for the last 13 years. But of course, really the last almost going on 50 years. Um, It's really, I think, hard. This is going to be a fascinating subject for history books when you know some historical economic genius or maybe it's a chat gpt version 6.0 sits down <laughs> and tries to recap what what happened to all our institutions why they have so many problems and so many scandals i think you know somebody's going to propose the idea That once once we switched to a a fiat money system like this, we essentially started poisoning society and changing what people value. And it was just sort of an insidious effect that built up over time. And now we see it in these behemoths of uh, these institutions that don't serve people. It's uh, a fascinating time. And maybe maybe a little recession would actually just reset things just a little bit, maybe not completely, but maybe would help slide that back just a, a couple of notches, a few years. But if you want to hear my take on the state of the podcasting industry, there's a lot going on. Go check out Office Hours 21 at officehours.hair slash 21. The JB shows are pretty technical in Office Hours. We kind of zoom out. We talk about more things that affect our local community. And we also talk from time to time about the state of the podcast industry and some big new endorsements from some mainstream sources around podcasting 2.0, including a major WordPress plugin that makes it really easy for anyone starting up a podcast that uses WordPress to participate in the podcasting 2.0
1: features. OfficeHours.Harris slash 21. Yeah, that's my show. I will certainly be checking that out. Now in Bitcoin Education, we are linking to the Bitcoin GitHub and specifically BIP329, which was written by one of our favorite wallet developers in the world, Craig Ra, the creator of Sparrow Wallet. And this BIP, which stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal 329, it essentially creates a standard so that when you restore a Bitcoin wallet in a different piece of software, you can keep all of the labels on the transactions. So it's basically saying that we should sh- we should store labeling data on the transaction. So for example, Chris sends me a transaction and so I write in a description field in my wallet, payment from Chris Jupiter Broadcasting, something like that. And with this BIP329, it means that if I have to restore that wallet in a different piece of software, if they're both BIP329 compatible, that description will pop up again in my new wallet. How's that for a summary, Chris?
0: That's great. And that's nice for organizational purposes. And it's useful also for some coin control. So that way you're a little more aware of what you're spending. Because remember, um, think of the Bitcoin in your wallet as not just one big continuous block of Bitcoin or something, think of it as a bunch of change coins that you've collected from transactions over the period of time or that you've collected when you purchase it. And those coins all go in to make the sum total that your wallet represents as the value. And so those you want to be a little aware of where you're sending and receiving them for privacy purposes, potentially, or just for organizational purposes. And so really fantastic software like the Sparrow wallet has made this super approachable. And and some software makes it just sort of the default workflow. It just sort of depends on what wallet you're using. But like the dad was just saying, it's just unique to that. So in this scenario where you have to recover with a seed phrase or something like that, you could potentially lose all your labels and you don't have any idea which one of those sats were the bribe sats versus which ones were just your spending sats.
1: The bribe sats? Yeah, we don't need to talk about the bribe sats, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, have to cut this in the <laughs> editing. Yeah. Was the bribe all the money I took from Jupiter broadcasting to, you know, promote Linux and open source for the purpose of the
0: I thought the bribe was the sats you were gonna send me so that way I don't reveal your secret identity.
1: Ah. <laughs> right. Okay. Well yeah. sending right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this might sound a little, what to say, a little specific. Why is this important in the context of Bitcoin and the myriad financial and economic and monetary problems besetting our world? I think for a couple of reasons. One, this is sort of a sign of the level of sophistication and evolution of Bitcoin development. We're not just dealing with a system that is a potential competitor to legacy money and finance. This system is a competitor. It works. And now we're at the stage where we're building nice-to-haves into that system in a way that doesn't compromise any of the underlying security and decentralization. Also, if you have never read a technical software development document before, and... You have some interest in that or you want to challenge yourself, give this a read because it is incredibly readable and what it's doing is relatively simple. You can even see the examples that come out of this standard. I'm so impressed
0: by this. This is a model for how open source projects should do this. For Linux Action News, just this last week, I was trying to just really get to the root of this net filter flaw. There's a zero-day net filter flaw that you can manipulate with uh, extra information in VLAN tags. And I was trying to get to where that was added to the kernel, what the rationale was. And it is so thick and complicated, and it's 15 levels deep in a mailing list From 2014. This is on GitHub. It is formatted in Markdown. It is elegantly written. And it even has
1: tables. <laughs> this is And a table of contents that you can click through. Every
0: time you and I kind of dig down into the individual development proposals or things that are code related in Bitcoin development, I think we often come away feeling like this is one of the absolute most professional open source projects you'll ever see out there. I respect the Linux kernel deeply, but the, the, the level of professionalism with these BIPs just is untouched in that community. It's untouched.
1: I think we could increase the professionalism of the Linux kernel if we integrate Bitcoin at a deep level, controversial opinion.
0: There you go. Um, also, just a side note, but Craig Ra, you are uh, a rock star. Really, really appreciate this. And I, you know, you could have seen a world where he wanted to keep this for Sparrow Wallet, the standard that he created to make it competitive, right? And so that way it would be like extra Sparrow metadata that you keep you in Sparrow Wallet and you could only recover in a Sparrow Wallet. You couldn't just easily pick up and move. But by him doing this, he actually makes it easier for end users to decide to stop
1: using Sparrow wallet if they choose. It's really an awesome thing to do. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch, dadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. Also consider joining our Matrix channel using a Matrix client like element links in the show docs. We got
0: some boosts, and seed dubs came in with 10,101 sats saying so much signal. Thank you. So he's a nice compliment. And then an additional 10,101 sats to say the Bitcoin Dad podcast hosted by Dad and Chris Last. Boost them now as sats. I wonder if he was trying to rank us up in some charts with that one.
1: Appreciate it, C-Dubs. Yeah, thank you so much for that big boost. And we got, I think, our biggest boost this week from BTC with 20,000 sats. Big Boost. Hi guys. Listen every week from Portugal. I learn a lot. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers indeed. Thank you very much. Optimus
0: Grey comes in with a thousand sats. He's catching up on the back catalog and he says by the way the governor of Missouri, aka the Show Me State, they called the reporter a hacker. He was correcting us. So I guess this is a bit of actually a correction boost saying it was the governor and I guess we got that wrong. He's giving us a correction URL to read. So thank you Optimus. The best way to get a correction is via a Boost. <laughs>
1: That is true. Yes, I think I confused it with the governor of Mississippi, two American states famous for being essentially third world countries. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Oh, <laughs> it hurts, though. Bob B. sent in 5,000 sats, gone down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin, thanks to office hours initially. Oh, cool. Hey-o. Hey-o. That was our ad this week. And dad. Wow. Eventually. Hey, cool. I'm so glad. And loving every minute of it so far. Question. Help me understand how to restock a lightning channel when I've run out of sats to send. Do I have to close the channel and open a new one? Is that the only way? Good question.
0: Ah, the classic lightning problem after you've been running it for a little bit. And unfortunately, Bob, there's not like one solid answer. It's one of these. Well, it kind of depends, but you want to probably look into a rebalance. Typically, the way you would do it is you'd have multiple channels and you could kind of redistribute sats by using one channel to send out and back to the other channel or vice versa. There are also, depending on how comfortable you are with things like Docker, or if you're using something like Umbral or Citadel, there are applications you can install that allow you to rebalance your channels. Ride the Lightning, I think, is one. There's also applications you can install that will allow you to purchase additional inbound or outbound liquidity, if that's the route you should choose to go.
1: Does Thunderhub also facilitate rebalancing transactions? I think so, yeah.
0: That sounds right. I have not used either one of those apps in a while, but I think I have them both installed on my own Mere Mortals podcast boosted in with a row of ducks. I really enjoyed listening to you, Chris, but your other shows are just slightly too technical for me, so I probably won't tune in with regularity. But my friend Peter Hart told me about this show, which is definitely more up my alley. Nice to boost in to you as well, Bitcoin Dad.
1: Wow, thanks so much, Mere Mortals.
0: Yeah. I've heard, I've heard of that podcast. Yeah, you know, Mere Mortals, you might check out Office Hours. I mean, (laughs) not to sound like a broken record, uh, but we don't generally get as technical with that one, but we do discuss the state of podcasting, and I think that'd probably be interesting to you. And, of course, with a podcasting 2.0 bent as well. And uh, we have uh, some of the developers on of the podcasting 2.0 apps, as well as some of the uh, fantastic developers from our community. And we uh, talk about things that we're building for podcasting.
1: Our final boost comes from at Rika Maru with 7777SATS found your pod through Fountain. Great high signal content and fast becoming my favorite listen alongside Matt O'Dell's Citadel Dispatch and NVK's Bitcoin Review. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for boosting in. Appreciate it. This is a value
0: for value show and uh, there are no sponsors. We're trying to give a go of seeing if we can build out a boosting community to sustain the show. And uh, we appreciate everybody who does boost in. Of course, you can boost in under 2000 in and we'll still read your message, just might not necessarily make it on air. And thank you to everybody who streams those sats or boosts in without a message. We still appreciate the support as well. You can go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com There's lots of great options. Fountain and Albi now let you top off directly using Moonpay. And uh, you know, if you're just buying some spending coins, that's not necessarily a bad solution. And Moonpay is lighter on the KYC stuff. They're still gonna ask you stuff, but you don't have to do like the taking pictures of your ID and that you don't gotta do like the selfie stuff, you know. You know, they don't go that far. So it makes it a little bit sm-
1: Smoother. the colonoscopy with yeah, your iphone right. they don't require that <laughs>
0: ah, yeah yeah you can also just boost them from the podcast index website without switching podcast apps you just got to go get the albi browser like i said you can toss a few sats it's all over lightning too so it's real smooth and then send it on over you know i i think there's more and more solutions out there so I'm, i've been throughout the weeks experimenting with different ones just to see which one seems to be the smoothest and fountain with Moonpay
1: is pretty hard to beat in terms of workflow and i just want to Mention, I think the boost limit is 1,000 to be read on the show, not 2,000.
0: Oh, Oh. well, maybe uh, maybe now that we're at episode 60, it should be 2,000. I mean, this is a fancy operation. They made it 60 episodes.
1: Congratulations, by the way. Oh, wow. That's great. I feel like we would change it at episode 69. Am I right? (laughs) Oh. Ah. Well, now we have to. Okay, so get in those boosts. Episode 69, we're going to raise that limit arbitrarily.
0: <laughs> this is an interesting way. I wonder if that'll work. I, I like this. This is, this is the fun thing about value for value is we're all kind of figuring out and experimenting, but it's all built on top of an open network and sats, baby.
1: This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 20th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.